and there's so many conflicting mixed emotions, mixed feelings. You want to do the right thing. You feel helpless. You want to be a good son or daughter. Yeah. And you just want to alleviate. Yeah. Alleviate some of the pain. Mm. Put her in a better environment. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I mean, but then at some point, there's nothing you can do. It's just... Right. They can't do anything. Some people would say like, well, well, why don't you just get out of that nursing home and just throw her on like a carnival cruise? I'm like, you fucking dumbass. Like that. No, she can't be on a freaking carnival cruise. Okay. Right. It makes no sense. <laughs> but people say stupid things. People said a lot of stupid things. People say, I, yeah, a lot of mm, people a lot standing of, outside say a lot of stupid things. A lot of things to make themselves feel good about themselves. Totally. Thoughts and prayers. Having. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> A lot of thoughts and prayers I got. Welcome to Confessions of a Financial Advisor, the antidote to conventional financial wisdom. My name is Al, and I've been a financial advisor for over 20 years. This podcast will explore the emotional and psychological factors that affect our behaviors. All of the other financial podcasts out there will talk about the numbers and the math. We will confront the stories that we all fuse with that ultimately set the course for our lives. I am not looking for new clients and have no intention on running for any kind of office. I'm going to tell you like it is and call out all the commonplace BS. Now, let's get into confessions of a financial advisor. We are on episode 14. And this one is called My Mom and Dementia, and I've coupled it with another post called Alone Together. And I'm here with Diane, my partner in crime. Hi, Diane. Hey. Well, this is one that's you know close to home, especially since my mom just passed away three weeks ago, and we wrote these posts before she passed. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a looking back, almost like a, well, it's, it's still very vivid, it's so soon after she passed away. This post is definitely. These two are very, very personal, very intimate, personal stories that even when I first read your raw writing content about your mom and dementia, I remember reading it and holding it and just going, this is very personal. Yeah. It was one of those roads that you couldn't have met. There was just no way. I didn't know it was happening. Like it just kind of, I fell into it and then you just mm-hmm. navigated along the way and yeah, there was and no roadmap. There was no. Years later, it's still going on. And then all of a sudden it's over. Yeah. And just to set the stage, my mom, five years ago, this is back in 2014, December of 2014, I was getting calls. She lived down in West Palm Beach, Florida. I was getting calls from her friends telling me that you have to get down here, Al. Uh, she's not doing well. She, we haven't seen her in days. She hasn't come out of her place. Mm-hmm. I had another friend say, I saw her stumble out of the place and get to barely get to her car. And what I later came to find out was what she was doing was she was getting in the car so that she could drive to the closest gas station, which was literally like right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And she would buy cigarettes and mm-hmm. desserts. Like disgusting, you know, this disgusting like gas station desserts. And she was diabetic, right? And she was diabetic, like, (laughs) you know, yeah, like severe diabetes where the doctor in Florida was telling me she has to be on insulin shots three times a day. And Mm -hmm. I looked him in the eye and I'm like, that will never happen. I'm like, she'll never do it. Unless you held her down like a prisoner 
right. and injected her with these shots, there's no way she'd be giving herself a shit. She just won't do it. Mm-hmm. So going to the gas station, cigarettes, dessert. She, that's the way she was living for I don't even know how long. Yeah. Because before that, I'd come, you know, I'd see her twice a year. I'd go down to Florida twice a year. I'd talk to her all the time, you know, yeah. a couple times a week probably. So right in that moment, I'm like, all right, let me book a ticket. I'm booking a ticket down to West Palm. Let me assess the situation. Because mm-hmm. I really don't know by talking to her. Half the time I would call, she wouldn't answer. She yeah. would only answer when she felt, you know, lucid enough to talk. Mm-hmm. You know, she knew about like if she was feeling weird, she wasn't answering the phone. So like withdrawing. Yeah. She didn't want anybody to know that she's yeah. struggling. So I get down there and walk into her place and it's disgusting. Like it's literally disgusting. Like just dirty countertops are just disgusting. Mm-hmm. I open up the cabinets. There's just shelves full of prescriptions that were unopened. Oh, wow. So she would somehow go get the prescriptions, but then never take them. Oh. So just was collecting, collecting, collecting prescriptions. <laughs> yeah. And you could just tell out of it. Because um, that, was, that was very, un, that was not normal for her. That was not her typical style or way of living. That was very, yeah, simply something was wrong. Yeah, good point. Like, so the way she was before the, all mm-hmm. this happened, mm-hmm. like in her, whatever, like her normal state. Normal. She was never missed a bill, was on top of her finances, had a not spotless, it wasn't like museum style place, but clean place. Clean. Everything was always clean. Yeah. Very social person, chain smoker, a nonstop smoking, you know, <laughs> just the way she was her whole life. And to go in there and see it that way. And then also to see her kind of, she was shuffling. She was like stumbling mm-hmm. around. She wasn't walking properly. Mm-hmm. And then I started to realize that she was completely incontinent. So then, wow. and of course she wasn't wearing adult diapers and mm-hmm. it was just a mess. So I just tried to figure out. So I literally stayed there for two nights to try to gather some stuff, to try to just figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And then realized, I'm like, I have to just basically put her in her car uh-huh. and drive back to Charlotte. Then I can't do this from here. I can't try to set things up in West Palm. Yeah. Well, the night before we're going to leave, I tell my mom, like, listen, we're leaving tomorrow. We're going to Charlotte. You're coming with me. Mm-hmm. And all I need you to do is put together two bags of like your personal stuff, like whatever you think you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, yeah, no problem, Al. I will go to bed, wake up the next morning. It's eight o'clock. She's not awake. 10 o'clock, not awake. It comes to like around 11. She kind of stumbles out. Mm-hmm. And I go into her bedroom and she's put nothing into a bag. There's nothing. She doesn't even, she's again, out of it. Yeah. So I literally just gather like handfuls of clothes and just personal stuff. I throw it in luggage, throw that in her trunk. And I put her in the car mm-hmm. and 12 hour trip from West Palm to Charlotte. Normally it takes 10, but for whatever mm-hmm. reason there was traffic. And all we're doing is I'm literally just like eyes on the road. Like I got to get her to Charlotte. And yeah. She's half asleep, you know, she's asleep most of the time in the car. Again, incontinent in the car. Wow. I'm just stopping for gas. I'm literally just, I just got to get home. I finally get home I, 12 hours later. I had to help her out. Like I, she literally couldn't even get it. After being in the car for 12 hours, she didn't get out once. Mm. And now like her muscles are all kind of stiff. And yeah. so I'm literally like picking her up, get her into my house. I put her on my couch and she passes out. And she spent two nights on my couch. I couldn't get her to a bed because my bedrooms were upstairs. Mm. Get her into a place. You know, again, these are all like I'm trying to summarize here. 
trying to figure out where to put her. I find this uh, independent living facility. I get her in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so strange. I and mean, I have to go buy her clothes because we didn't really bring enough stuff. And it's just... Well, it's like became, unexpectedly being thrown into a whole new world full of chaos that you weren't anticipating. Yeah. And you said it appropriately that she just became, in a moment's notice, she became independent to completely, completely. dependent. Yeah. Completely dependent. Like it couldn't do anything for herself. You mm-hmm. know, basically she would have just sat in that condo and just died eventually. I mean, she yeah. just wouldn't have been able to do anything. So that was the start of the whole dementia And that was five, over five years ago. So December, I remember the date exactly. December 2nd of 2014 is when I flew down there. And it's been five years since then. And it's just been, it's been a nightmare. Like the whole thing was a nightmare for her. I I hated watching it. I tried to do my best to, you know, make her comfortable, but it was just a long, you know, things just continued to digress. Dementia got worse. She got diagnosed with bladder cancer. Mm. She fell more times than I can even tell you. She said she had a couple of heart attacks too, which sounds fun. Yeah. So prior to that, that was back in her 60s. She had a couple Mm. of heart attacks. Of course, continue to chain smoke (laughs) and eat desserts while she has diabetes. I mean, she was just one of those people. Like, you couldn't tell her what to do. She's going to do whatever the heck she wants to do. Doesn't yeah. care what a doctor says. I know. I wish I'd gotten a chance to meet her. I feel like I would have liked her. Oh, you guys would have got along <laughs> very, very well. Absolutely would have got along. Yeah, so she got diagnosed with bladder cancer. Just just everything. Like, in and out of, like, doctor's appointments, in and out of hospitals, coordinating home health care, everything. I, cigarettes all the time. Diapers all the time. It just became a second job, like a part-time job for me to like just totally. maintain, you know, keep her up. Her care, right. And and when I tell you when I first picked her up, I swear to you, in my mind, she had one foot in the grave. Yeah. Like, I'm like, she. there's no way she's going to last three months like this. Like, there's no way. There's, it's, it's not an, possible. It right. can't be possible. Like Five just, years later. Five freaking years later. Yeah. yeah. You know, so many different things happen within there just to, because I want to create the picture for people that, not to scare anybody, but this is the reality of what could happen. Yeah. My mom was a very stoic person, was somebody that never would ask for help. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got her into this independent living facility, they would leave her in a room for mm-hmm. mo- the majority of the day by herself. Like solitary so, confinement. Kind of like solitary. And yeah. so she would lose her, lose her shit. And she would be calling me, you know, nine o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. Al, I don't know where I am. Please, please call me. Please call me back. I don't know where I am. Okay. And then hang up and then call 10 minutes later. Like it never happened because she'd forget that she just called Mm -hmm. and just all kinds of craziness like that. I mean, there's so many different details. I'm not even sure. Well, you've talked about the challenge of navigating and determining like an appropriate level of care, even when it came to the facilities that she was, that were caring for her because there was no roadmap and the facilities are a business. And so they're focused on, as you said, getting butts in beds. They're not focused on determining what's appropriate for each individual. That's all on you. Yes. And they're very liberal as far as what they'll just to get the butts in the beds, they're uh-huh. sure. Yeah. Oh, she needs that. Oh, yeah, we can take care of that, which mm. most facilities can't take care of half of the things they promise. Mm. So, yeah. So, putting her into a place that was inappropriate, which was an independent living, she needed 
and assisted living. Yeah. But again, the facilities tell I came from such a naive standpoint thinking that, oh, well, if I go to them and I ask them, this is where she's at. Is she okay here? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. she's okay here. I didn't know it was like a business. I thought it was right. more of like a hospital, I guess, where they would assess the situation and then say, this is not appropriate for her. Right. But it wasn't, it was a business and it was like, mm-hmm. get her in there, yep. you know, and we'll get to keep her here as long as possible until like, we literally can't take care of her. And then mm-hmm. we'll tell you something. Mm-hmm. I started figuring out, starts at independent living, goes to assisted living, then there's sealed care, and then there's like full out nursing home. Mm-hmm. Those are really like four main stages. And she went through all of them. So she mm-hmm. went through all of them. Memory care was one also that was a, a lockdown facility. So mm-hmm. for people that have dementia, they'll get up and just wander walk. off. Yeah. There's you know, a safety, personal walk, safety risk. Walk out in the middle of the street. So everything's under lockdown. Mm-hmm. We didn't even have the codes to get into the facility. We had a ring a bell and wait for somebody to come mm. the main entrance to buzz us in mm-hmm. and then had to lock it right behind us, that kind of thing. Yep. So yeah. So, I mean, this all kind of played out and five years, it does sound like a long time, but I can't even tell you how long it felt. Like it felt yeah. like just walking on eggshells, like literally constantly just, yeah, just on this kind of like tightrope of like, when's the call going to come? Or anytime right. I would go do anything, like if I had a vacation or anything like that, I'm like, the stress before it, just to try to coordinate everything so that I can go with, not even a clear conscience, but somewhat of a clear conscience. Right. The level of preparation involved and the just, added stress. And when we first talked about this topic, I explained it to you that it felt very much to me like grieving someone who is still alive. And it's like this extended very protracted, almost indefinite process of grief that you're navigating while the person's still living. Yeah, very true. And just the roller coaster ride, because there was times where she was, again, she was lucid, she was there, she was like, she always knew me, she always knew my daughter Mia. Mm-hmm. She was there, and then there'd be a week where she'd be like, you Gone. know, ghost white and like just have the thousand yard stare, you know, where mm-hmm. like she just looks like. Well, how many times was she in hospice over so, those years? Uh, she, she was, <laughs> funny. I know. Four, four <laughs> times. Yeah. And the final time, literally, she I signed her up for hospice for the final and the last time. I signed her up on Monday for hospice, spent an hour doing paperwork. Tuesday night, she passed away. But the three prior times, it all started after getting diagnosed with cancer. That was the first time. The, okay. the, the specialist. Whatever. Yeah, the specialist who diagnosed the cancer. The basically gave the, the oncologist, that's it. He actually gave the recommendation for hospice. Oh. So we had a referral for hospice. So I'm like, okay. I guess she needs to be on hospice. Hospice comes, they assess her. Uh-huh. Yeah, she needs to be on hospice. But then what we do is we, they reevaluate every 90 days. Right. And if in 90 days, she looks like she could last more than 90 days, mm-hmm. meaning survive more than 90 days, yeah. then she's off hospice. So yeah. every time they re-diagnosed her, they determined uh-huh. that she was healthy enough where they didn't think she'd die in the next 90 days. Wow. So they take her off. And then that happened two more times over. And then the last time was the final time. So it's just, yeah, it's just pure... It, well, it's and, an emotional roller coaster too. I mean, there's an, such a deep emotional component when it's your parent. And I can't wrap my mind around what that experience must be like because your roles are completely reversed. You know, as a child growing up, you were the one dependent. And we've talked about that, the role reversal and what that kind of brings up too. 
because mm-hmm. now the parent is completely dependent and you described it as almost like a Benjamin Button type of thing where instead of like, you know, as a child grows up, they hit developmental milestones and they get more independent. And with an aging parent, it's the reverse process as they get more and more dependent. Right. Yeah. Benjamin Button. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's the reverse. Just watching the whole thing play out. It was a tough thing to like go to the facility that she finally landed at, which was a nursing home. She'd Mm -hmm. fallen one too many times and broke her hip. Mm -hmm. And that was it. It was kind of like, now you're in a nursing home. You can't do anything. You're from Mm -hmm. a wheelchair to a bed. You need multiple people helping you to do everything. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you get to the nursing home portion where she spent the last year of her life. Mm -hmm. And you'd walk into a place like that. And I hate saying it this way, but it was like an insane asylum for elderly people. Yeah. It's just people yelling, people like having gibberish conversations, drooling all over each other, choking, mm. spitting up food, throwing stuff, arguing, having conversations that having two like different conversations. T- yeah, but, but talking like a, to each other. Right. And neither understanding. It's not like a retirement resort. It's level of crazy. Yeah. And every time we walked in, it had like this smell. Yes. And it's uh-huh. like, oh, it was just uh, that smell. And it was a nice facility. It's just you're dealing with what you're dealing with. and You're it's, dealing with clinical aspects of life and care. Yeah. And so that's kind of the way it, it shaked out. And I'm the baby of the family. I'm the only boy in my family. I have two older sisters. Mm-hmm. Not to even get into that, but my two older sisters were incapable of doing anything as far as helping. So it landed on me. And that even changed the dynamic a little bit because now it's a son. Yeah. So it's like a male taking care of a female. It's an interesting dynamic. Not that I would have liked to have taken care of my dad in that same way, but like it would have <laughs> felt like at least more appropriate or comfortable or. Yeah. I don't appropriate's know. probably a good word. Appropriate. Yeah. And well, to boot, so everybody else in my entire life that has passed away uh-huh. died like that instantaneously. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking like, Three to four aunts and uncles. Uh-huh. My dad. My dad died. Oh. You know, he got sick, and a week later, he passed away. Gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just fast. Mm-hmm. And everyone else in my family was like heart attack, stroke, heart yeah. attack, stroke. There wasn't ever this long, drawn out process. You know, process of deteriorating. Mm-hmm. So that was just a shock to me, just to watch that and just to. Well, who like, would have thought? I mean, like you said, when you first went that first one-way trip to Florida, like had no expectation that it was five years later, you would still be navigating. No journey. expectation. Yeah, yeah, right. I had no idea that, that that would happen. And then there's the whole financial piece. So mm-hmm. she was actually, my parents were always savers, like uh-huh. lived very frugally. Like they had a thousand square foot, two bedroom condo that they lived in for their entire retirements. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, they had a one bedroom I think it was like 600 square foot. Like they upgraded to a two bedroom and they thought they were living in the lap of luxury. Yeah. Um, in retirement down in Florida. I think they paid 35 grand for the place. Yeah, cash. I believe it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like real cheap to live down there. So when I, I finally consolidated everything, she had a decent amount of money. Yeah. And we literally blew through most of it in that five years. Mm-hmm. And the financial fear then came because we're paying over $8,000 a month. All Which expenses. is insane. That's Eight crazy. Grand. Eight grand a month. Eight grand a month. She doesn't eat anything, barely. They're literally just wheeling her in front of a tea. It's like a babysitting place that has like a 24-7 on-call presence. And mm-hmm. you're paying, that's what you're paying eight grand for. Right. And so I'm, I'm terrified that she's going to run out of money. So now I'm like, if she right. runs out of money, now I have to go through the process of getting her to qualify for Medicaid. 
mm-hmm. which means she spends all of her money. She has nothing. Nothing left. Uh, right. The state takes over your social security check. They take over everything. Uh-huh. They'll pay for her care, but now they own everything, right? right. Well, whatever's left over. Right. So that financial stress was like kind of weighing on me too. I'm like, she's got another year. She's got another year left of finances to sustain her. And mm-hmm. then am I going to be able to afford to pay eight grand a month? Nope. I don't have that kind of money to. Well, even if you could, do you want to? Well, I, mean, I definitely, I definitely don't. And she wouldn't want me to. Um, right. But what do you do? Right. I mean, there's no euthanasia law <laughs> in North Carolina, <laughs> but they have, I mean, I'm being completely oh honest. They, they have this in other, they have this in other states, like in Oregon. I know Oregon is one, but there's others. Mm. More but there's like euthanasia. Like think about it. Like when you see your pet suffering, right? Yeah. Do you, do you just there, let your pet sit there and suffer until the, until they just die? There is such a thing, especially, and it's widely accepted with animals as humane euthanasia. There really is. I mean, I have held my own foster kittens as they died over the years. I mean, it's not that I enjoy, I don't enjoy it and I don't find it fun. It's awful. Yeah. But sometimes that's what needs to happen. Or if they have cancer and they're suffering. Right. Do you want to just, con- so let's just watch the suffering for six months until. And continue to fund it. Yeah. The care of it. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. And I know if people think it's inappropriate to speak that way about people and especially somebody like close to me, like my mother. Mm-hmm. But if my mom in her right minds yes. saw the way she would be at the ends, yeah. she would have been like, pull the plug, please do whatever you can. Get me out of this misery. Yeah. And I think most people kind of say that, you know, jokingly. But obviously, when you get to that point, you don't know the difference because you have dementia mm-hmm. and you're confused and you're not in your right Disoriented. Right. Yeah. So we, we wrote this post to kind of, it didn't coincide with this, but it was sort of like almost... The feelings, right. I, it, it came from, yeah, more the emotional side of just watching her and our relationship and mm-hmm. how that five years played out outside of the details of what we just talked about. Right. It was called Alone Together. And it's kind of like this weird thing where you're with somebody and you're looking them in, in the eye and you're holding yes. their hands. They're, and, you're physically present with someone. But. And they're lost in their own minds and they're alone. Yeah. And, and so are you. You're both alone, but you're yeah. together physically. Mm-hmm. Right. And it did feel like an obligation. It didn't feel like something I wanted to do, like mm-hmm. to go visit her. And right. But I'm like, I have to do this. Like I need, like she needs me to do this. Yeah. She needs somebody to do this. Like, but I remember thinking like, I don't really want to do this. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking I should be doing this more often. Like I should be coming more often, but I couldn't even bring myself to do it. It was kind of, it started just to see her twice a week. And then that got down to once a week because it was just taking so much out of me. It was like ruining my week. It was ruining. Mm-hmm. And I hate complaining about it because she's the one that's suffering, but I'm watching it. And it, I think sometimes it's just as hard, if not harder for the person that has to watch it. I was witnessing. Yeah. I'm just perceiving her suffering, but I don't know if she was really suffering. She was in La La Land. You know, she was like, she was just out there. Just not present. Mm -hmm. So every time I read the section of the post that we wrote together Uh of, I got down to going once a week and I feel really bad about that. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm letting her down. Yeah. That sucked. That was the worst feeling that you're letting somebody that you love down. And, you well, don't the, and do you're that. letting a parent down and there's such a, an emotional bond when it comes to our families. 
Yeah. I think this happens on different levels. It doesn't just happen with people that are dying. I think mm-hmm. the alone together thing could apply to like many different relationships. My marriage. Your marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I felt like I was never alone. I was constantly lonely, you know, alone together. By the end, like he and I weren't speaking. We were, certainly weren't sleeping together. Like, yeah, we were together, but we were both very alone. Yeah. Just the idea that you could be alone in a crowd kind of thing. The totally. Idea that- yes. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter about the physical presence. It's well, and you observed what her daily life included. Like it included her being completely alone by herself, but yet still together with other residents and caregivers. Yeah. And they did that intentionally. So they made sure that all the residents, when you got to the nursing home level, that all residents, if they could, were brought out to like a common area, like a community room. Yeah. They didn't want anybody like staying alone. And, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> A friend of mine told me, I th- actually, I think it was my girlfriend, Shelby. She basically said, you know, they I, they probably do that on purpose to preserve their life. They want to extend the, their life as long as possible to collect. To collect the, the money. Fees. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just keep them together. If you put them alone, they're going to die. So if you put them like in a community, then they'll actually live longer. Don't lose the sense of community and connections. I'm like, oh, There's man, that is so it. dark. Probably, I'm like, <laughs> There's probably perhaps some truth to that. There might be. It did seem like she did better when she was with people. Well, she was in her head, but it was just different. It was, it alleviated some of the crazy confusion. Yeah. So humans are wired for connection. And when you are disconnected, it makes sense that quality of life would deteriorate even further and more quickly. Yeah. And I think I remember also talking about how appreciative I really was of the people that took care of her. Uh huh. Because you got to understand something. I mean, it's, you said the word unsanitary and it's the perfect word for it. (laughs) It's unsanitary. It's disgusting. They're living Mm -hmm. like animals. Like if they were left to their own devices, they would never clean themselves. Right. They would have food all over them. They're incontinent, like all that. Right. And there's people like literally like picking them up, undressing them. Mm-hmm. washing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, performing basic care activities, basic care. And believe me, not getting paid a lot for it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And not all of them did it, you know, with a big smile on their face either. It wasn't like, you know, everybody was happy to do it, but there were a handful of people that had like this spark to them Yeah, that like they were made to do this. Like mm-hmm. they found joy in helping somebody that was so down and out. That takes a special kind of person. Oh. I don't think I could do it. Just honestly, I know I don't, I wouldn't want to. I couldn't do it. And it chokes me up talking about it because I'm like, that, thank God for that person. Like, I I wouldn't know what to do without that person. Mm. Because, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to bathe my mom? Like, no, that's not happening. No, No. no, there's no bathing bathing your dad. (laughs) You're going to bathe your dad? No. No. (laughs) Uh, And there's so many conflicting, mixed emotions, mixed feelings. You want to do the right thing. You feel helpless. You want to be a good son or daughter. Yeah. And you just want to alleviate. Yeah. Alleviate some of the pain. Mm. Put her in a better environment. I don't Mm. know. I mean, but then at some point, there's nothing you can do. It's just, they can't do anything. Some people would say like, well, well, why don't you just get out of that nursing home and just throw her on like a carnival cruise? I'm like, you dumbass. Like that. No, she can't be on a freaking carnival cruise, okay? Right. Makes no sense. <laughs> but people say stupid things. People said a lot of stupid things. People say, I, yeah, a lot of mm, people a lot standing of, outside say a lot of stupid things. A lot of things to make themselves feel good about themselves. Totally. Thoughts We're and prayers. Having. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> a lot of thoughts and prayers I got. 
(laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's so many stupid, like, oh, there's a special place in heaven for you. You Well, and I found your reaction to that was interesting. Like, you never were like, thank you. Fuck off. Like, yeah, it was like a fuck off. Like, you don't know shit. Stop making yourself feel better by just say nothing. All right. Right. I'd, I'd rather you say nothing or just say, I'm sorry, or. Right. I'm sorry is a good go-to in a lot of situations. How, if I can help in any way, please let me know. Anything like that. Don't I'm start like. Of you. Yeah. Yeah. The key is not making assumptions about how you would, what choices you would make if you were in that position. You know, we're all doing the right. best that we can. Right. We really are. And it's like having compassion for each other. Like if you threw me in that situation, I have no idea what choices I would make. There's no way to predict that. You cannot know how you would navigate challenging life circumstances if it were you as opposed to someone else. You're doing it on the fly. I feel like one of the worst things like somebody would say, oh God, this one got to me. Never say this. Anybody out there, please never say this to somebody that's going through like, oh, I could never put my mom in a home. I could never, oh, wow. you know, oh, I would just, I would have my mom in my house and I would just take care of her. I'm like, hmm. F you one more time. Uh-huh. And who the fuck are you? Like, yeah, let's, you don't even know the circumstance. You don't know the situation. What if you couldn't take care of her? How would you make money? Are you going to be with her 24 seven? How would you even survive? But they make these sweeping, like generalized assumptions, generalized assumptions. And, but again, the moral high ground thing of like, I'm better than you. See, I would actually take care of my mom. You're just going to brush her off into a home. And yeah, that just burned, that burned me to no ends. And I've heard that multiple times. And again, I don't think they're trying to be malicious. I don't know what they're trying to do. They're just. No, I don't think there's malice typically behind it. Just there's a total lack of awareness. Until you're in that situation, you have no idea how you would choose what choices you would make. Yeah, you're you're a fucking tourist. You're a tourist. You are not not a a native. That's right. I love that. I'm the native in that situation. I'm the tourist in many other situations. Mm -hmm. But I just hope to hold myself to a standard to know when I'm a tourist and not to speak out of my ass and say stupid things. To Mm -hmm. it's like me going to a cancer patient and being like, "Yeah, I know what you're going through. I must suck." Yeah. I know mm-hmm. that feeling. No, you don't. You don't have cancer. Sorry. Right. Can't say that. Not allowed. <laughs> I know this is like an angry podcast now. It's like getting my emotions stirred up. So, but circling back. <laughs> anger sometimes is a helpful emotion. And it, it is. Anger is a huge part of grief. It really I it mean, is. You cannot take anger out of grief. It's so cr- Sadness and anger go together. Yeah. Like yeah. grief and anger, sadness yeah. and anger. Yeah. yeah. Very close emotions. But sometimes anger is an improvement. Have you ever seen the scale of emotions? They're literally ranked. Yes. And like- The worst is like shame, right? Like the lowest. I think so, yeah. And so sometimes if you're in like despair or hopelessness, sometimes Mm. anger is actually an improvement. Right. So you're moving up the scale. You're making progress instead of sinking or staying stagnant. Yeah, right. Because at least there's energy, like depression. Yeah, anger would be an improvement on depression, right? Because yeah. you don't feel helpless. You feel like at least you're doing something, you're doing you're something, experiencing something. Yeah. The thing we talk about a lot is about you never know what's going on in other people's lives. Right. You never know what's going on behind the scenes. I was listening to like a really cool, it was a YouTube thing where David Foster Wallace, 
famous uh-huh. author mm-hmm. who killed himself okay. so a while ago. But he wrote a, this really, I can't think of the name of the book off the top of my head, but it was a book that's named like one of the top 100 books of all time. They made a movie about him. Anyway, David Foster Wallace, he gives this commencement address mm-hmm. and he kind of talks about this idea that you never know what other people are going through. So like when you're driving down the road and all you're thinking is like, that person's in front of me, they're freaking slowing me down. I need to get somewhere. What an idiot. This person's riding up my butt behind me, like tailgating. And then he goes to say, he's like, yeah. And the person behind you might have a sick child in the car that they're trying to rush to the hospital. The person in front of you is basically just got into a car accident and is like, their therapist made them get in that car Right. To like basically so they're having conquer a, their fear. Anxiety and yeah. And so I mean, you are can those make up th- a ton of stories. I mean, you, you just could. really never know. It's yeah. all under the realm of possibility. Totally. It doesn't mean that that's probable, but it's definitely possible. Mm-hmm. So I start to think of things that way. That I think that's one of the main things I got out of this whole experience with my mom is that holy crap, you don't realize. Like, you know, if I saw somebody mm-hmm. going through what I just went through over the last five years mm-hmm. and they were being angry or they were acting in a way that I found inappropriate, mm-hmm. like now my instinct would be like, shit, they're dealing with something heavy. Like, or they could okay. at least potentially could be dealing with something real heavy. Compassion and, rather than judgment. Yeah, and their behavior doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, no. like 99.9% of the time. That's, that's nothing it's not about you. Yeah, it's... What a novel concept. Yeah. And yeah. driving is my favorite example of situations to employ that in just because, mm. I mean, it provides so many real-time examples of opportunities to really practice it because compassion is not ultimately about, just like forgiveness. It's not ultimately about the other person. It's about my inner level of peace. Yeah. It, it, it's a tough pill to swallow. I mean, when you're in those moments and you're angry or you're sad and or like frustrated or frustrated or in a rush or overwhelmed. But I think, again, people would always ask me or they would say other comments like, well, you know, your mom's teaching you something through all this. I'm like, oh, you motherfucker. Like, you got more, <laughs> more, more freaking advice, more stupid advice. More unsolicited advice. Unsolicited. Yeah, yeah. Did you ask them for advice? No, there was no invitation, pests. <laughs> you're not a guest, you're a pest. <laughs> so, yeah, so they would say stuff like that. Like, well, you know, maybe your mom's trying to teach you something through all this. You know, there's a lesson that you need there's to learn. There's a blessing in this. Oh, there's a, a blessing. Crap. That kind of stuff. Yeah. If I wanted to try to pick a silver lining out of this, it would definitely be that. It would be definitely be the idea of compassion, but also just like from moment to moment, realizing that people are dealing with a lot of times, a lot more than you could ever imagine. That is a hundred percent true. Yeah. And I know this from my own life experience too. People just tell me stuff. People just tell me their stories. I'm out and about like literally just strangers start talking to me. (laughs) Like, hi, have we met? Like, yeah. Everyone's yeah. got a story. Everyone's got a mess behind the scenes. I know. You're like the, the therapist for the, I'm the general public. the informal therapist for the Charlotte metro region. <laughs> the informal therapist, right? <laughs> well, I hope that like left this post on somewhat of a good note, that there was some sort of silver lining. It was a tough five years. I honestly, like now that it's over, it's mixed feelings still. It's sad, but I feel definitely a sense of relief mm-hmm. for her, for me, for everybody involved. Right. So that was my mom and dementia and alone together episode 14. Please come follow us at faconfessions.com. 
And next week we will have episode 15 and hopefully something on a lighter note. <laughs> oh, I think it's Western and Eastern philosophy. Oh, thank you. Uh, that sounds so much more fun. That does sound a lot more fun. So yeah. Western and Eastern philosophy will be our episode 15. 15 right. <laughs> yeah, Eastern and Western philosophy should be a, a cool topic. It's something I've been thinking about since I was in college and took my first philosophy course. And mm-hmm. like my brain works more in a philosophy kind of context than it does in a religious context. Yeah, mine too. Um, so I love like the idea of just the West versus the East. I think there's benefits to both. I definitely lean more towards the Eastern philosophy and, but it's going to be a cool subject to talk about. There's a lot of duality there. Yes. The dichotomy. Yes. Mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah. Like I said, please follow us. FAConfessions.com. Share. Subscribe. Subscribe. Like. I already said share. Comments. Yes. Yeah. All those things. Well, thanks, Diane. Thanks, Al. Thanks for listening. We look forward to doing this again next week. We'll see you next time. See you next week.